0: Podcast, guys, takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Hello, fortunate seeker. And welcome to a very special episode of Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon, Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata, part two. Speaking, however, of worlds where we are not, and of creatures that, and shifting from eternal creatures to the decidedly mortal, there's a... Something that, to me, is really interesting in the guide, Uh, religion has always been one of my scholarly interests, and I am from the United States of America, which means religion is also, even in my secular life, a very present phenomenon. And religion is present in the guide, as it should be in a fully completed world, or as its noted absence should be, I suppose. I'm not here to dictate what people write. but. The religions in the guide are really cool. We have the House of Light with a lot of pieces that are familiar to my Christian-dominated culture, a holy book, regular sermons, a clergy which practices healing, even if theirs is more at call rather than miraculous, or well, mirac- extraordinarily miraculous. Uh, there are calls for blessing, there are angels, though they be terrible, but who Rilke already taught us about that. But then, if we say, oh, okay, so it's fantasy Christianity? No, of course not. There are absolutely absent elements, like a well-defined afterlife. Whereas in the Western world, and the great Western religions, afterlife is one of the biggest things going on. And in addition to that, we don't have all that much eschatology. It's, here is the struggle where we are, not, oh yeah, and then when the last day comes, uh, you know, a uh, savior creature will appear, and then everybody's in paradise forever the end. What was it like building these religions? Why were they built like this? I know I only mentioned one of them, and I keep using religions plural, but that's just the most interesting part to me. <laughs>
2: Um, I'll say the House of Light came... uh, Its structure, basically, uh, came to me as in... All right, you're you're in a setting that you know for a fact the gods of reals are real, that there is an afterlife, and there's even such a thing as resurrection. But it's a known quantity that those people who have been resurrected can't actually tell you about what's going. So basically, the information you have is uh, from the Book of All Things, for this region at least. And was more or less handed down by angels to some extent so um you can't really abuse the religion uh, for political purposes uh, purposes to the extent that uh, it has been historically speaking uh, here in the real world
0: uh, One could uh, argue it was abused into a crusade across the entire continent, but...
2: Uh... It, it, it absolutely was in Procaire, and uh, Procaire is a part of the House of Light that was uh, that was politically structured and founded later, and uh, you might notice tends to get a lot of pushback from actual heroes as to how legitimate they are. Uh, I guess, in a sense, it's uh, for something like the House of Light, uh, it's hard to say... Uh, we and only we speak for the gods above when you can literally have a farm boy who walks in with a holy sword who's capable of producing more light than the greatest archbishop ever will and is <laughs> divinely mandated to liberate the sure. neighborhood
0: joan of arc or i guess farm boy john of arc if you will
2: yeah and uh, these things happen regularly enough that that people recognize the pattern so um I guess to some extent saying that you're the sole source of truth, that you're the only people who can talk for the gods, isn't something that really works. Uh, so we know there's an afterlife in that setting, and it's not very well defined, because uh, it's not information that you have access to, but just that uh, safety that, well, if I if I live well enough, if I if I pray to the gods above, I will probably end up at their feet, uh, I guess makes... Um, religion more common, but also less centralized. Uh, as for the gods below, um, I guess the reason it, uh, very, uh, it's very even more decentralized is, all right, ask yourself honestly the question. If you encounter a guy who claims he's the priest for the gods of murder, betrayal, and uh, everything bad, are you going to trust this guy? Very fair. It's, yeah. I just... Well, <laughs> I, like to, do you do you, care, you Karos go is convincing. yeah caros Ka- is very convincing and, and some characters recognize that he's essentially a high priest of below but as an organized religion in the same way that a house of light is it's very difficult which is why you have personal worship it is why you have cults but a cult by definition is uh, you have your in group of the chosen and honestly everybody else is expendable which is one of the reasons the cult are also are also um political parties quite often in price, which is why the tower suppresses them, because they're a source of rebellion and uh, unauthorized sacrifices, obviously.
0: As opposed to the perfectly fine, legally ordained sacrifices that go on every day. It's yeah. an amazing empire. I mean, if it's,
2: if it's legally correct, why would anybody have an issue with it? <laughs> exactly. I...
0: Have a duty to our listenership who knows I go on tangents just to note that I am resisting the, the tangent to talk about how the House of Light structure and the way you described it right before transitioning to below is something that Max Weber would very much argue is kind of the root of all capitalism. But I'm not going to go on an anti capitalist rant with the guest here. <laughs> well, that's Instead, why. Honestly, let's talk about something else problematic.
2: Yeah. All right. Please. Hit me.
0: Honestly, no. Let's go for honesty. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. I, by Canadian standards, I'm left wing. So by American standards, I'm basically a communist. So you're not gonna <laughs> hear well, me speak yeah. the capitalist gospel here.
1: Yeah. Don't don't worry. You're you you're in good company. <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> we uh, our very first episode, and kind of added a couple times after that. We. Brought up Campbell's hero's journey, uh, our you know the famed hero of a thousand faces um, that, uh, and we we talked about this a couple of times uh, here or there before we pretty much just abandoned this uh, problematic, if obviously influential work, uh, and we found our own footing and focused elsewhere more uh, internally on the guide. Um, so in thinking about that, was there any particular? theory or body of work or field that um fueled your trope based story here uh, you know obviously we're all familiar with these tropes or you know that could border on stereotypes from just existing in a world with stories um were there specific things you were drawing on specific inspirations for these tropes or was it just more of a a cultural osmosis vibe
2: that you were working off of? Uh, Look, uh, I'll say to some extent it's inevitable to use the hero's journey because it's it's not groundbreaking theory or anything. It's just based on a study of folklore. Like right. it's, stories tend to be shaped this way it's uh, obviously he is a pretty narrow interpretation of what a a story should be but like it's it's a recognizable shape for a reason like a lot of our our folklore myths or legends tend to be that so for sure I, i i guess i use the hero's journey to a reason but um to an extent but would i base an entire book on it absolutely not uh i think it's not inaccurate to say that um the practical guide, the, the seven books overall, are a story both of Catherine's journey and how she relates to the world around her and also of the Age of Wonders which uh, yes. and, which ended up being uh, very similar things uh, closer to the end but using the hero's journey for that uh, not something I would have ever have planned on um, and more than that uh, on the web serial format, and maybe just over seven books total, I don't think is something that could be cleanly or neatly patterned. Uh, if there's one ironclad rule that I used for every single character, and it's not a system, it's just a rule, is that um, every single character, when they they have from their perspective, they need to have a valid reason for what they're doing. It's never, I'm just doing this to advance the plot. If I cannot justify that action from the character's point of view, I need to find something else for them to
0: Yes, wonderful, correct. But what a difficult thing to navigate when advancing the plot is sometimes a relevant tool in the toolbox of the characters because diegetically there is a plot going on because it's a story about a story or a story about stories. But on
2: your hand, that's, that's the, the thing with the, the light hand of providence, is providence isn't, uh, I'm putting a gun to your head, you have to charge across that river and win the battle. Is Providence arranges, given the wind, your past experiences, you're the right person at the right place to make that decision that makes you win the battle. And if it just happens to make you very heroic as it happens, well, that's just the way the cookie crumbles.
0: <laughs>
2: Ideal. Yeah. I guess the closest thing to the story taking you hostage is when you deal with the fate, where Kat discovers that, oh, if I make them say the right thing, I can basically make these people do anything and win the battles around them.
0: Which then makes a story about stories, a story about a character in a story trying to write the story?
2: Yeah, the the levels of meta can go pretty deep if you... I guess uh, peruse it too deeply. Uh, it's, it's um I guess it's something I I wouldn't say try to correct with, but I'd never least wanted to address later in the story with uh, particular in a conversation with uh, Catherine and Indrani. Uh that was about if all you have this is the story, you're not really gonna win because uh if the story's not real, it doesn't really matter. So Catherine can game the rules when she's in a like in a place Arcadia, in part because she's also running in the background of the story of clever person taking advantage of the Fae. But you can't just put three paladins on top of a hill and beat an army. That's it's not how the setting works.
1: That layer of uh, story on story on story the one we're reading all of this is makes (laughs) discussion of the guy definitely uh difficult or maybe not difficult that's the wrong word challenging in a great way uh and uh the the layer with the fey added in there especially is is a, a lot of fun to really dig into and it's one of the reasons that uh Getting to that point in this podcast is uh, concerning for me where we're going to be a- an extra layer deep in it. And uh, uh, so I, I just uh, that analysis of, uh, of the layers of the story is so fascinating and such a weird line to balance compared to a lot of other things. And it- it's just very, very weird to think about, I guess, is
2: where I am with that. A lot of fun to read. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun to write. So I guess everybody wins out. There
0: you go. Speaking of that, which is fun to read, and I am glad to hear fun to write, Catherine's great. We know, whatever, that's the primary engine of the guide. But the interludes are, were, are and were consistently a wonderful treat. And we get to see the world through so many eyes from random person who we never view again. And so I'm not even going to be able to name because this is an example pulled out of thin air to i don't know my future wife and dear mommy cordelia hasenbach uh when writing these is there any perspective that was a real treat for you or any that was a great burden are there perspectives you wish you had been able to spend more time with any time with are there perspectives you regret spending time with um
2: no. um the, the easy answer is Kairos is a lot of fun to write always because he's always having fun when he's on screen
0: and that's apparent to the reader as well yeah, absolutely. everyone had it's, fun there
2: it's it's, <laughs> it's why he carries he's a compelling perspective I find is that Kairos could get uh kneecapped in the middle of a chapter but he's still having fun so you don't mind it doesn't feel it almost feels like a cartoon because uh, obviously real people are dying in by the perspective of the setting but uh, he's he's a uh, he's a he's a cartoon villain in a lot of ways so that would that's always been fun to write in the same way that abigail has always been fun to write um, oh, poor woman yeah uh cordelia is uh both one of the most difficult perspectives to write because um uh, for the same reason that militia is actually because they're both extremely intelligent people with a uh, good political savvy and uh, i mean a character can only be as smart as the person writing it so you always struggle to make sure they have uh Why not to do the... I guess, have you ever seen the the, the, the BBC Sherlock, the one just called Sherlock? Um, He does this thing... uh, where um, instead of uh, the way they do it in the original books where you have the same uh, information as, uh, as Sherlock and you're maybe able to solve it, uh, often he, he just solves things with the superpower of being intelligent and knowing information that the the watcher the, the person watching the show doesn't have. And uh, when writing an intelligent character, you always have to be very careful for that. So in that sense, uh, Cordelia and show were two of the most difficult people to write. Uh, because i have to make them the right amount of competent without magically hand waving the competence on the other hand uh, cordelia particularly scratches that world building itch because she understands very well the land she rules and uh, she understands the player she understands the levers of government and uh how to to make things happen and that's always a lot of fun to write it's uh, one of the series of interludes i had the most fun writing was uh Cordelia uh, during the coup, which are also known as uh, Cordelia's uh, very bad day. (laughs) Yeah,
0: One of my absolute favorite chapters, no doubt. Though, I think for most every reader of the guide, maybe people have pretended to pick out a favorite chapter, but there's that handful, with a few that are near universal. People love to see a godhead restored, people love to see a god cut down but that one that, that's mine that chapter belongs to me i apologize for taking it from you but it's mine now
2: <laughs> five my favorite is earlier in the book anyways I, I guess it's a toss-up between that and uh i think it's uh hollow hollow which is uh, the rest oh. of uh, you know.
1: it yeah if when people uh whenever there's a discussion about favorite chapters if that doesn't come up, then people are talking about a different work. Uh, It's, (laughs) it's so good. I, that was, uh, I, I have said before to a number of people that uh, that chapter was when the guide went from being an excellent work that I loved reading to probably my favorite work of fiction out there. It was, it it turned the corner for me. So, uh, (laughs) you know, it's very great. I'm, still excited for this reread uh, you know for a number of things but for that chapter especially oh,
2: there's a there's a couple of tri- chapters uh, writing the series that uh, I it would be like around 10 at night and I would feel like that feverish energy in the belly and like the chapter was basically writing itself and I could tell like okay this is this is gonna be one of the good ones like I think the first time I really had that uh, sensation was uh, the chapter the the chapter where Catherine and Hakram uh have it out for good and he calls her warlord for the first time that was i think the the turning point where I, I realized like okay this is the caliber of writing i think i can try to aim for with this series
0: magnificent
2: that's phenomenal
1: and also uh quite the uh quite the benchmark to set for yourself writing okay. that chapter and saying this is where i want to be all the time that's wow <laughs> that's that's i uh, fantastic
0: and Forgive me if you don't wish to answer this, but when setting such a high bar for yourself, that big, that's difficult, is there any point where you were in that 10 at night feverish point of this is amazing, this is great fiction, I can do this, and the next day it didn't quite congeal into good? Um, I'd say
2: it didn't happen that often. Like oh, okay. I, I, I'd say I had like uh, maybe eight times that I already struck. Like I had that sensation. This is gonna be one of our really good captures. And I think maybe once the reaction wasn't as strong as I wanted it. We, it was positive, but not uh, people didn't get as um, excited as I thought they might. But overall, typically, like my instinct have tended to land well for that.
0: I apologize on behalf of the community for failing you. Oh no, no, no.
2: The, the, <laughs> the thing is um, i don't think it's either a fault uh on the end of the reader or the writer when something doesn't necessarily land the right thing to do is uh, look at your writing and see what is it that i saw that they didn't see and typically it uh, can lead you lead you to a deeper fault line in the book that you might not necessarily have noticed is would it be impolite to ask what the chapter was that didn't get the reaction you were hoping for? Um, if you don't want to say, that's completely that fine. I, I honestly can't recall. I'm pretty okay. sure it was in book six. All right. But honestly, the ones that stick out in my, in my memories are tend to be the ones that landed well, because, you know, selective sure. memory and all that. Yeah, r- riding the high of, uh, yeah. of a great reception, I
1: get
0: it. Yeah. A selective memory, remembering the good points of one of the highest rated pieces of web fiction of all time.
1: Also, remembering the good points out of the 670 chapters. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. You did say, however, and thank you because I wasn't sure how we were going to get into this question neatly, that those two, I don't know, anchoring perspectives, the first prince and the dread empress, were a challenge but a joy to write. I have a question about the two of them because we're early into book two on the podcast, and I've noticed some strong parallels—more than were already obvious—between Hasenbach and Militia. We've got these two women who, when newly ascended to their thrones, respectively, sow confusion in each other's lands. Militia gets power and immediately works to fund the uncivil wars. Hassenbach rises up and is immediately trying to turn the rebellion to her advantage. Callow is the piece caught in the middle every time. Were they intended to be black and white, good and evil, two of the very many sides of a coin present in the story? They were. They were definitely
2: meant to be parallels, and I think they are. Uh, Cordelia, the reason she ended up being the character that she is, is uh, I set out to make a character that was uh, influential and heroic while using everything that is traditionally purely female virtues. As in, Cordelia doesn't really have a fighting scene. Like, the the most fighty thing she does is throw herself out a window and ask for help. Because uh, I didn't want to do... Um, tomboy young girl uh goes to war and becomes this important person that I, I guess technically to an extent i'm doing that with Catherine, even if it's a very different uh, kind of story uh but cordelia I had a particular set of virtues in her uh, for her in mind which was uh, etiquette she was good at reading people she's good at diplomacy she's good at making deals she's good at trade she's good at administration and i wanted to make her entirely based on those skills uh with militia Uh, What I set out for is, uh, I guess, um, she ended up having a lot of the same virtues as Cordelia did by simple uh, just because uh, for the position and the role that she has this is exactly what she needs to have as a skill set. And it also fits for the weakness. Uh, Militia more than Cordelia has uh, the military as a weakness, because Militia has been always uh, able to rely on Black for that kind of thing. While Cordelia does have uh, her her uncle as her main general, but she's a little more aware, and um, he doesn't have to deal with the same kind of internal threats that Militia does. So parallels, yes. Using Tallow as a plaything is a theme that I leaned in a little later in the series. I didn't necessarily uh, intend for it to stand out uh, from the beginning, but um, essentially the Crusade book is Catherine is between those two powerful women who are better than her in politics, and she has to find a way to get out of that without ruining everything around her, which is why she ends up taking a very bad gambit, because she has been thoroughly Cornered by people better at than her at politics, uh, I would not say that uh, I meant them. Cordelia is good, ruthlessness, and militia is bad, ruthlessness. Uh, very much on the contrary, what I wanted to establish is that uh, at the end of the at the end of the day whether you're standing in the tower or uh, in the highest assembly. If you're using real politics, you're operating essentially by the same rules. Cordelia might have more altruistic intentions, but she does end up doing things as nasty as early books militia before she gets really desperate because of the political situation. Mind you, late books Cordelia has her hand on the angel nuke football for the entire last book, so... I wouldn't say she was that, literally, yeah. I wouldn't say she was in that morally superior position either.
0: but i I am on record as standing against monarchy and, in fact, hierarchy in almost all things. I certainly don't preach any virtue of violence and nuclear everything is terrible. And I take that back because I have very mixed feelings on nuclear energy. But thank you for writing. Cordelia, as you did, her though she embodies and is and chooses and is forced, it, it, it's a stressful time being at the end of the world. And though she chooses and is forced into courses of action that are perhaps morally inadvisable <clears throat> she she's such a captivating character, someone I can't help but root for, someone I don't want to help but root for because. Dang it, she's trying so hard. She's using every tool at her disposal, and she's using it well. And she's polite about it. It's fun.
2: More or less, yeah. it's uh, Cordelia's uh, defeats uh, not infrequently come from outside context problems for her, which is why, it, from perspective, it can kind of feel like she's getting kicked again and again, because who the hell exp- uh, expects your political... Uh, your known political warlord quantity to the east to just show up to in the north of your realm with an entire army of dark elves.
0: It really is unfair. <laughs> I I think speaking of things that are unfair, there is more that we have to demand you apologize for than we could list here, but it just why why did you have to do robber like that? Oh, because I wanted to hurt you, of course. <laughs>
1: Oh no! (laughs) Well, you have succeeded. Accomplished, yeah.
2: Yeah, I almost staggered Klaus's death uh, for in a later book just to make it hurt, you know, so the the losses wouldn't meld in together. But uh, Robert's death is very much the heart of that chapter.
1: Oh, absolutely! But the the glory of it all is elevated with the juxtaposition with Klaus, so that does benefit Robert there, but. Oof! It's a rough one to read.
2: Yeah. No, it. Uh, I, I guess it, one of the reasons for that was that all right, this is the war with the red uh, with the dead king. Like people you love are gonna start dropping now. We're we're at that point in this story.
0: Going to start dropping now. <laughs> yeah. um, I hate to correct your memory of the guide, but Ratface and uh, actually all of Rat Company except for what four people.
2: Yeah, uh, most, most of Rat Company, uh, a few of the unnamed members probably survived as officers in uh, the Army of Callow, but yeah, a lot of them died. That that's the thing, though. Ratface died off-screen. He's a, he's meant to be the surprise gut punch, which I, I think most people yep. take. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing is, we're used by that point in the series that if a character is on screen with Catherine, you there's uh, that point in the series an expectations. They're probably going to live through it because Catherine is good at keeping the people that she likes alive, if only because she takes the the mutilating hit in their stead. Uh, So robber was meant as a reminder that this is the kind of war where Catherine can do her best and people that she loves still die.
0: Okay, but but it's the person we love. I was going to say, did it have to be (laughs) robber? Of course it had to be robber. Yeah. Being Uh. right doesn't make your actions any more palatable.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. I totally. I, I did not anticipate this discussion to uh, to head towards us just being sad about Robber, but here we are. When uh,
0: evil stares you in the face, you must confront it. <laughs> there
1: you go. There you, go. <laughs> you know, if there's other guide-related things you'd like to talk about, great. Uh, otherwise, we've you know got a few questions more about you um, that we could go
2: into. Up up to you. Uh, I mean, we can, you can definitely ask me questions. I might not want to get too. Uh personal about my own private life but i I can definitely answer basic questions questions and certainly about the writing process as well um i guess if i if i have to ask you anything it would be um, of the all right so from book five onwards particularly on book six i introduce a bunch of names especially through the arsenal arc in your opinion as someone who has um Obviously read and taken uh, quite close notice of the material. Uh, Do you think that um, introducing this amount of names, uh, while before I had very few on screen, uh, diluted the importance of the concept? Because that's something I've gone back and forth on over the years. Because obviously something like the Accords has to be big. Because if it's an alliance between 30 people, it's not the political football. It ended up being for two books. On the other hand, is uh, involving a bunch of, I don't want to call them small fry name, but that's pretty much what they are with only a few who ended up rising to the occasion. uh, Does it diminish one of the core elements of the setting, in your opinion? So
1: when reading it, uh, I had that concern, I think, as more and more names started to show up. I started uh thinking to myself like are we approaching a point where named are the foot soldiers in in this you know and uh i don't think it ever reached that point and i think uh one one thing that really helped with that honestly is the barrow sword um he started off to my recollection as just another guy with a name and then rose to being one of the more important newly introduced named uh maybe the most important newly introduced named by the you know latter chunk of the the series um and so that that kind of as he was rising that kind of gave this idea that any of these named you see could become incredibly important could be the one that turns the tide in some pivotal battle could be the one to save catherine could be the one to, to save robert just you know notes for the yonder version um, of course, of course <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but the being able to focus on a few at a time, and the the formation of the five man bands as they were necessary, and uh, having the ones having there be enough possibility that any of these people who in their own right are incredibly important could become important to our story, the story we're seeing, meant that it didn't feel like they were foot soldiers. It meant like they were all potential pivotal people, and so I, I like I said. Getting into that chunk where more and more people started showing up with names, I started to get concerned that it would dilute it, uh, but I never actually felt that way. I never actually reached that point for me.
0: Right, that's good. And uh, I would take a similar conclusion, make a similar conclusion. The beginning of the guide sees names being introduced as really, we, we meet all the local names, at least in the WordPress version. We see the handful of names of the empire we see Catherine as the name rising from Callow and then we see a few heroes appearing but names are few and far between and really powerful big deals and as the crusade turns its eyes north as we get this organization of the named there are definitely a whole lot by our earlier standards but We're opening up to the wider world or the wider continent, because this is a backwater nothing place somehow, which also you need to write a few books about for us. Thank you. And we don't reach a point where it seems there are plenty of named, but rather, wow, these are, this is it. They're really bringing together all of the little local guys, all the everyone, and they're losing so many of them as well. This is Catherine's story. And Catherine is the is on the trajectory to be the warden. She's going to interact with all the named. So yeah, there are plenty, but it shows where we are. I felt and feel. All right,
2: that's uh, that's good to hear. That's the. I mean, the accords were uh, I guess uh, the training wheels for what Catherine ended up being by the end of the series. In that sense, so there's a. I don't want to say a requirement, but it's more fitting for there to be a lot of name involved. Uh, the dichotomy between early books where there aren't a lot of named and suddenly a lot of them coming out of woodwork is, uh, not to repeat myself, but uh, in the second draft, something that uh, I'm trying to balance a little more evenly, which is why in the Yonder stuff, there are uh, two, at least two more names uh, in the Empire, and maybe more that uh, we haven't seen in the original draft and uh, i i guess it's part of the broader effort at uh, filling price in a little bit as well
1: oh interesting yeah that's that's very cool since uh that's one of the things about the the dread empire that's very noteworthy is they have uh from our perspective a very step and short list of named and you know they usually have all of them apparently but there aren't there aren't that many and so that, that's cool to see uh, a few more
2: a little more there I mean, there's a scene late in uh, late in the series where uh, Aqua has a conversation with Catherine about um, typically the band that coalesces against uh, around the, the Red Emperor uh, or the Red Empress, uh, what names there can be as part of that band, and what it usually means about that person's ring. I basically took that idea that should have been there much earlier and uh, fit it better to the setting. It's a. Uh, I, I, it's been very satisfying uh, as a writer to be able to go back to something I wrote in my fairly early 20s. I think I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we all yeah. are. Or, that you. doesn't that doesn't uh, help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's uh it's been fun to be able to go back to that and. Uh, I mean, there's a I guess there's a sense that uh, your first book is something special and it, it will absolutely always be something special to me. But I can also look at those pages and see um, I have grown as uh, in the technical aspects of my writing. I have grown in the technical aspects of high approach books. And it's really satisfying to be able to go back and apply that craft on material that is still very dear to me.
0: I have to ask this question because if it's not a meme within the podcast, we have worked hard to make it one. But will we ever learn more about this mysterious Wizard of the West?
2: Right. Um, which one are, are we talking about? Theodore Langman here. All right. Uh, I did see that maybe on the wiki at some point people assumed uh, he was the Wizard of the West during the Conquest, and I can confirm you he was not. It's uh, significantly earlier in Callowin history. Make which yeah. uh, I guess textually it's a small detail and uh, it probably got lost in the din. But uh, Catherine, while she's talking with uh, the undead Edward, the, I want to say 7, seven for eight, I can't quite recall. Oh, that sounds uh, about right. Yeah. Uh, while talking with him, um, she begins a, uh, that very quote that is the the most famous uh, one of his most famous quotes, uh, Langman uh, at the very least, one of the most popular in the fandom, and he finishes it, which does at the very least imply that uh, it was already a quote known while he was ringing so uh, I guess uh, even in the canon text, it's uh, barred as an option that he was the guy during the Conquest.
0: Fantastic. And it also makes me curious you talk about the wiki, which is a wonderful and incomplete and flawed and glorious wiki um, as an author of a work with a wiki about it how does that feel but also how do you relate to the wiki do you do you double check your own work on it do you use it as a tool do you correct it do you laugh uh, at it
2: look um when the wiki was just started and there was not a lot in it, I basically myself filled in the Legion page, which is why I look at it and I can recognize my own writing now. Um, I don't use the wiki as a guide, with the exception of one page, which is uh, the one with the epigraph. When I'm going, when I'm doing reference, because I have that on a Google Doc, but I it I find it much easier to use that page instead.
0: We know and love this page. I was going to say, the
1: two pages we have used most uh, while on air to, to double check things are the Legion page and the Epigraph page. So
2: that's really interesting. Uh, I think there's uh, there was a, the, the week in particular, there was a phase where uh, I think it's maybe one or two editor who really wanted there to be power levels to how the guide work, which is... Uh, a misunderstanding, I think, of how names work in the setting where mm. all all power is circumstantial. So uh, that amused me, but uh, there's been a significant community effort since to, uh, I guess, uh, clean up the thing, uh, clean up the pages, uh, add uh, accurate stuff to the text, which I really appreciate. It's uh, And I think it's probably for people who are uh, just now uh, beginning the text or dabbling in fanfic, it's probably a very valuable tool. And I'd say... That by now the vast majority of the information that's on there is uh, is uh, accurate. There's the still a few things that are speculation taken as fact, but uh, I think I feel like it's not necessarily my place to step in and correct that stuff when it's a fan space. Fair, yeah, that's fair. a that's a very fair stance to take on it.
0: it. the division, the professional boundaries between self and fandom, especially in a organ in an organically grown space like the world the published world the fandom world of the guide must be interesting and difficult to navigate effectively um, but we appreciate that you try to do it well
2: Thank you uh, I'll say uh, especially now that I'm on the roller road with uh, Bill Lights these days uh, I have been informed by several pretty reliable sources that I'm really bad at drumming up those kind of uh, <laughs> relations i guess because i keep uh, uh, apparently a fairly unusual amount of distance for uh, uh, internet right which is more common in internet writers these days although uh, i think we've all seen um, the most famous case of that is wildbow where the guy got burned again and again by his fandom which got pretty rabid at some points yeah I so there's a lesson to learn there and uh, thank Thanks to Wildbow for taking the hit, so I wouldn't have to learn that lesson myself. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, my
1: read on the situation as somebody who is very much outside any of that. I, you know, I am. I've of course read some of Wildbow's works. Uh, and I've obviously read yours, and uh, am, but am not uh, deep in those fandoms necessarily. Mm-hmm. Please ignore the fact that I have a fan-based podcast on your work um <laughs> uh and but uh, from what i've seen you seem to keep a pretty healthy distance like the relationship is a, a healthy one rather than a uh, a standoffish one if that makes sense it's not a an impolite thing it's a you know it, there's an avoidance of
2: like a parasocial relationship i suppose hmm. so you know that's that's great i mean and there's I mean, you do have have to recognize when you uh, write on the internet that it's a different kind of relationship that you would do if you got traditionally published. Because uh, there's an amount of direct interaction with the people who read you, which you would never get uh, if you were selling paper books, basically. Because Mm -hmm. when you interact with your fans, if you were traditionally published, is uh, basically when you go on tours, when you go to cons uh you might have an email account but it's not going to be your personal account and there's a decent chance that it's being screened for you so you know if there if there are threats or wild stuff it never reaches to you while uh, i mean and anybody who writes a comment on wordpress on any of my books technically has a direct direct, direct line to me which is uh i mean it has positive uh aspects in that if a chapter lands well or lands badly, I will know very quickly. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> I think it's a, it's an unusual amount of exposure for an author to be uh, that direct. I, I guess no, so not so unusual anymore now that there are more and more people doing web novels and especially something like Royal Road where uh, um, interaction with the fan base, uh, with the people who read you on that kind of site is very much part of uh, how you do things. But um, I guess it's not necessarily something I enter. I expected uh, going into writing. Although uh, I guess I, when I was uh, younger, I never really expected myself to write on the internet because I didn't know that was a thing. So,
0: yeah, things have changed. <laughs> but you, I maybe I don't get to say. It, it seems to me you've. Uh, I hope that you have been able to successfully maintain privacy and separation to your satisfaction, well, it seems to me that you have done so to some, to a fair degree at least. When we were looking to start this podcast, we looked for a while to figure out how can we write to you just to say, to, to ask your permission, ask your blessing, and at the very least be able to say, we sought it, because maybe one of the biggest web fictions out there, but at the same time, maybe it is. There's something about the direct line web fiction provides, where it's not just talking about a piece of art in the world; it's talking about somebody's art. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to offend or go against your desires, but at the same time, it was unclear to us for a while how should we reach you until we reached out as we did. Yeah, uh, I mean the old uh, contact the author. I think there's I left
2: a way to contact me on the the gold guide site on the on the sides. I. Do not think I put that for Eyes, Actually, that's a fair point. I should cite it in there. Um, I will say uh, <laughs> it's always more comfortable to interact with people in curated space, uh, like the Discord or Reddit or something like that. And uh, I don't feel like my privacy has really been uh, infringed in any way. Like uh, at some point, I think uh, my name was put on the Reddit uh, aside from my uh, non plume, so to speak, and uh, I had not expected that to happen, but I don't really have a lot of presence on the web overall. The most active thing I have is uh, I waste time on Tumblr now and then, so it's, it's not like there's a lot of me to find out there anyways.
0: A very good choice. And I'm very sorry about the uh, revelation of your name, though, now... Oh no, I, I mean, put I was, it out there yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I
2: had, I think, maybe put it on the Patreon at that point. So it wasn't like uh, a breach of privacy or anything. I think they literally just directly took it from there. Uh, I guess I just never expected to be my actual name written on a Reddit. It felt a little surreal. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> We've got a podcast with low triple digit listenership. And well, yeah, it, I didn't expect people to treat us like internet people. You're an it, internet person. I know that, but we're not.
1: It, like, uh, I'm sure you can relate, but when we started this, our, our, or maybe you can't, uh, maybe you knew that you were working on something great, but we, our initial discussion was, you know, we'll probably have one of our friends and maybe two or three other listeners and we'll just have a fun little project. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always weird when there's something that happens and you, you realize, oh, maybe this, this is a little bigger than I was expecting. And it's, it's, it's or, weird.
0: Less than a year later, you're chatting with the author. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I think
2: how can I put that? Um I think the, if you the wonderful thing about the internet is that anybody can take their shot but it doesn't really feel real until there's been a reaction on the other end of the void which uh I guess when I when I started the the guide uh, writing the first book I figured uh, maybe a couple of people are going to read this I'm I was doing that at the very least Half the reason was that there's good, this is going to be just public enough that I would be ashamed to miss a deadline. So it will force me to keep writing instead of doing like a bunch of chunks of chapters from parts all over the book. And then it started picking up a bit. And yeah, I guess it snowballed from there.
1: Snowballed a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think we just have a, a couple yep. other things. Um, you you mentioned uh, we've mentioned a couple other pieces of media here and there you know the inheritance uh, Tolkien of course because fantasy is on the table. Um, I and, do
0: apologize for bringing up inheritance. Yeah, I make holes <laughs> in my thing.
1: Uh, and you mentioned like uh, BBC Sherlock. Uh, so I guess if you don't mind us asking, like what sort of things are you reading or watching? What what sort of media are you engaged with now? And uh, maybe. Obviously, the things we read, the things we listen to, the things we watch are going to influence our creative works. Like, There's no way around that. Do you think that the things you engage with, the media you engage with, actively are, are shape what you write or the things you focus on, or uh, do, you, do you keep your, so to speak, work writing separate from your for fun
2: consumption? As much as Uh, possible. I mean, there, to some extent, like your life always influences how you write. There's a a section of I think book four where Catherine started smoking uh, the pipe a lot less because I was myself quitting smoking at the time, and writing about a descriptive scene of Catherine smoking was like pouring oil on the fire. Sure. Uh, as to stuff that I'm reading right now, you actually just caught me on the end of a uh, vacation abroad on the beach, so I ended up reading a lot, uh, catching up on books. Uh, I just finished *Uprooted* by Naomi Novik, which uh, I quite enjoyed. Uh, caught up on uh, *Asimov's Foundation and Empire*. I had read a first half, but uh, it got lost in the weeds. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I. Okay, this is gonna sound weird, but uh, *The Greek Myths* by Robert Graves which I know is, uh, mythologically speaking, a highly inaccurate, because the guy is a poet, not an actual like scholar of mythology. But uh, even his interpretations, uh, it, this is the kind of book that I think uh, falls half under leisure, half under uh, research, because I enjoy... I, I, I love reading about mythology, particularly Greek mythology, which was my bread and butter when I was a kid. But um, I read... Uh, these interpretations of uh, Greek myths uh, with an eye to like, oh, this is probably some stuff I can use in the background for pale lights, that sort of thing. Uh, cool. I, I did hear you uh, mentioning uh, mentioning a locked tomb series earlier, and I devoured those three uh, when I got it. I, I third one was harder uh, harder on me because I didn't enjoy the, the point of view all that much, but uh, love the first two. We are we are huge locked tomb fans around here. Um. <laughs>
0: And the third one is, uh, I have the most affection for the situation in Nona, but it's something I want to keep a fond memory. It wasn't so wonderful making the memories.
1: <laughs> sure. It, it's pretty
2: easily my least favorite of the three so far, but, uh, yeah. you know, still great. No, it's um, I guess uh, it's a kind of book where I'm more invested in the side characters than in the protagonist, which is uh, not great. On the other hand, like it's still high-quality writing, so I'm definitely going to read that book and definitely read the fourth when it comes out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. You can ask my co-host how often I bring up Ianthe. Uh, I can't help it.
0: <laughs> no, that's, that's only the seventh time this evening?
1: Yeah, probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's another book series that, much like Practical Guide, does very well at avoiding the male gaze, but perhaps unlike Practical Guide, it's entirely written from, a, or at least for two books, it's entirely written from quite the female gaze. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: how can I put that? Uh, obviously she's, a, as an author, she comes from different, very different place than I have, and has had very different experiences, so I think it's, a, a, I guess, inevitable to some extent that uh, <laughs> you can try to achieve the same thing and have that basis you leave from lead to very different results
0: well no one would well never mind i'm familiar enough with fan fiction to know this isn't true but i was going to say no one would ever demand that practical guide be locked tomb or vice versa yeah but in (laughs) fact you can probably find someone trying to marry the two already definitely it's really great there's not a lot
2: of fan fiction about a guide. I didn't notice which uh i guess isn't a relatively uh Normal for web uh, uh, for web novels because aside from Worm, I've noticed that there's not a lot of fan fictions of the, I guess, the, the famous, semi internet famous uh, works that uh, people cite most often. Although yeah. there's oh. so much Worm fanfic.
1: Oh my goodness. I, I've never sought out fan fiction of something I was engaging uh. with, but I know there's so much Worm fan fiction. The other web serials I've read, they crop
2: up occasionally, but Worm, woof. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, I'm still surprised after all these years how big of a phenomenon Worm was. Like it's uh, one of the reasons I started uh, writing the the guide on the internet is that I saw through word, uh, Worm that oh this is this is something that can that you can do like this web novels they exist. That's good to know.
0: Our April first episode of the podcast was on the on, an, on a chapter from the Leviathan arc in Worm because you know. Just do the wrong book for the podcast. And yeah, I,
2: I, I It was wild
0: that. how much worm attention was won. How yeah. many at this point, decades since it ended? I yeah. speak hyper hyperbolically, of course. Yeah.
2: No, but uh, it's still the mother of all web fiction worm. Like it's uh I think uh, in part because of, uh, I hesitate to throw a word around like cultural impact, but it definitely like created a, s- a space that has been very long lasting and is very enthusiastic and very large. <laughs> For sure.
1: So, uh, I, you know, you just said worm was gave you sort of the notion Permission? that it was. Yeah, uh, permission's a strong word. I almost said it too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the. G- proof of concept that you could, you know, write on the web in that format and it goes well. Um, so clearly that was something that you had read prior to the guide in its, you know, being published as it is. What, uh, were there anything, is there anything that you remember? I know this is a while ago at this point, reading or watching at the beginning of the guide, during the guide, what, what sort of media were you engaging with while you were? Uh,
2: I, I've said this before, but, uh, I think bookwise, the most formative influence I had on what the guide was early books, certainly it became a very different thing later on, is, um, I, I've mentioned the book before, it's a Soon I Will Be Invincible by Austin Grossman. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, which had the exact tone of something I wanted to write, even though it's a, a, essentially a superhero deconstruction in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And it did that additional step where it then reconstructs uh, the the super villain and superhero and it it, it pokes fun at the tropes while making uh, while taking them seriously at the same time which was definitely what I set out to do uh, when I started writing the guide uh, chapter by chapter sitting in front of that computer typing away that's really interesting yeah it's uh, I the deconstructive
1: nature of a lot of what was going on in that book is it's cool to see that that was uh, influential for uh, for the guide that that's awesome. There's
2: uh, actually a direct homage scene in uh, the second book, uh, that very book, which is a cat uh, walking around uh, after the um, Uh, after the battle against the Exiled Prince uh, while walking uh, through the green light, where uh, I uh, make a reference to uh, the scene that struck me most in uh, Soon I Will Be Invincible, which is uh, when uh, the villain protagonist, uh, there's this explosion in his lab with the fire, and uh, I sideways reference that exact same moment uh, with catherine walking through the green fire as it was a green fire in the book if i recall correctly huh that's really interesting i
1: i read the guide before i read uh soon i'll be invincible so i don't know that i made that connection the first time through but uh, now that i know to look for it i'm i'm excited we're
2: you know we're coming up on that so that's really cool Just a few weeks so to speak Otherwise, no, I'm just uh, happy to be on. It's been an interesting experience. Like, second podcast I've ever done, and this is uh, much more guide-focused. Sure.
1: Uh, I mean, obviously for us, this has been a blast. It's, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We appreciate uh, that you were willing to set aside so much time to do it and that you've been so forthright through your answers and thoughtful and, like, everything has been great to hear about. And uh, we we deeply appreciate this. And... uh, You know, hopefully it goes without saying, but you're welcome back anytime if you ever want to have a place to talk about something you're working on or, uh, you know, we'd love to have you whenever. So,
0: And we are also very glad if you ever want just that extra small, but after this episode, even larger piece of amplification for any news you have, any work you're doing, any even just, hey, Yonder is now going into the second book, or second, uh, I, I remember, well, volume. second volume. Thank you. Yonder is going to the second volume now. Right. If you could uh, note it on the next episode, we'd always be glad. Uh,
2: Yonder is actually going to take a little uh, bit longer of a pause because uh, it's a new text. Uh, but what I can tell you, if you want to mention it, is that I have seen the first uh, batch of drawings for the, the guide webtoon. And I'm pretty happy with how things are turning out. Fantastic! Yeah, that's, that's deep, awesome. Deeply exciting. Absolutely.
0: Is there any public timeline on that yet? Uh,
2: no, to your uh, knowledge. Well, Webtoon okay. is a really big company.
0: <laughs> like,
2: uh, I uh, I guess the uh, I have a good relationship with Webtoon pretty much, but uh, this kind of stuff is. Uh, when it's that large of a company like you you go with the schedule they have it's not really something i can push or pull uh we are as far as i can tell uh reaching the light at the end of the tunnel soonish but uh once again once the company that big uh schedule can be is a flexible thing
1: they have they have maybe a bit more power than you in that dynamic
2: <laughs> yeah uh, i mean uh, i don't want to get into details or anything but uh, my agent did very well in uh positioning me regardless to that
1: Awesome. I mean, that's great to hear.
2: Well, we'll look forward to
1: more news on that, more updates on that and the eventual release. That's very exciting. Yeah. Uh,
2: So yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, I look forward to giving news uh, about that when it comes out. Uh, It's not like I'm going to keep it quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, I mean, in that case, I think that's about all we have. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know. Would you be willing to, to... Give us our, our sign off. We just we end every episode by saying Wade in their blood. Would you be willing to deliver that for us clean so we can <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. <laughs>
2: Wade in their blood. <laughs>
0: podcast guys talking erratic erratic colon podcast guys talking to erratic erratic is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic as a practical guide to evil check out the full serial at to evil.wordPress.com. intro music for this episode was royal guard by nikki Peak. outro music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is phantom by lemon music studio the music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions? Comments? Contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Maybe not this time, because we had the author here. But, email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access all of our patron-exclusive tangents. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and Liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Faye Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, more interviews? It's next week on podcast guys talking erratic Arata, as we discuss
1: a war to wage
0: the lack of age
1: and the death of equerry
0: oh a triple rhyme this time
1: yeah i uh, what can i say we uh, we know what we're about Wade in their blood